Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Studio of WHUPLP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour, together we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, a not so still life. Producer, engineer, entrepreneur, filmmaker, Roger Corman is with us. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Either or, glad to have you with us. My name is Robert Malazzo. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film. But each week we're happy to be with you live on WHUPLP Hillsboro. But also, uh, we are evergreen. You can hear the show Murmur. On iTunes, subscribe and download. You can also go to our website, murmurradio.com. Murmurradio.com has our past episodes. You can also listen to us via Google Play and Stitcher. (laughs) Murmurradio.com. Social handle is at MSFMurmur. That's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Murmur Radio. Modern School Film is modernschoolfilm.com. Email us also at murmurradio at gmail.com. Send us a question. Send us a thought. Send us a comment. We will read them on the air. If you see a guest coming up and you want to email us a question for that guest, or if you want to tweet at us, tweet us a question for the guest, uh, do so. What's stopping you? It's murmurradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and make this a two-way conversation uh yeah, Robert Molazzo back with you. Happy to be here. I um Roger Corman is with us today. It got me thinking, Roger, I met Roger f- a few years ago. Uh we did a, a conversation together in Philadelphia. And it was it was really extraordinary. He's he's an amazing man. Uh I've never encountered a man or woman or human or or an alien and I've encountered a few in my day with such a clean thought process. He, I can't tell if he's the most or least ironic person I've ever met. I think he has no irony, which is interesting when you think of his body of work. What is also extraordinary about Roger, and this may sound pedestrian, and I mean it in, in the least pedestrian way possible, his memory is truly... Uh, it should be studied by scientists. It should be put in a time capsule. The next Biosphere project should uh, feature Roger's memory. It should be called Roger's Memory. There's a book title for you. Just give me a thank you in the acknowledgments. Roger's Memory. Meeting Roger a few years ago, speaking to him, uh, and now having him back here on Murmur, he has a new workout, which is a revisiting of a 1975 film, Death Race 2000. What's great about that film, Death Race 2000, if you watch it, what I, one thing on a very ordinary level, it's, it's an hour and seven minutes long, if memory serves. It's not longer than an hour, ten, certainly. I love that runtime, and I love 
films that are very tunnel visioned, that they don't have a lot of peripheral vision. Rogers remade it as a producer. He produced that version of it. It's been done a few other times, and he's producing a new version, Death Race 2050-50. When I was thinking about Roger, when I think about Roger, I wonder, can a human being live a life that in and of itself is a work of art? Is there an art to living? Is there an art to one's life? Uh, Neil LeBute, the writer, uh, filmmaker, stage director, once defined art to me. He told me, um, art are the things he cannot do. Art is the thing he cannot do. Art are the things he cannot do. That was an interesting definition at the time, and I think Neil is such a smart guy, and it struck me. And I think that is one vantage point of calling something a work of art. So if you see a chef prepare a souffle and you're neither a chef nor anything resembling somebody who could create that even following a recipe, you may think, oh, that's a work of art. It's beautiful. And in that definition, the thing you cannot do becomes the work of art, defines that. There's another form of characterizing someone's life as a work of art or the things they do as works of art. Now, these two definitions aren't exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. The other thing is the way we do things, the way we live our life, the art of it. It's the ownership of the intent, the intentional ownership of actions and events which is the opposite of the unintentional. So if, if Neil Labute's definition was, the things I cannot do are art to me, well, the opposite is true certainly as well, or can be true. Well, I want to look at that, the choices we make, the things we create, the life we live. Is that a work of art? Or rather, is there an art to that? Now, if we want to stay away from a broad acceptance of that concept, we can because the implication of a broad acceptance of that concept implies that everyone is an artist, and that may sound really awful to you and untrue to you. So if we look at it myopically, if we look at it you know, if someone intends to live a life a certain way and we admire that way, then it becomes a work of art. The trouble with that definition or th that that uh, alibi for the concept of living an artful life is we don't we only know a limited amount of the story of someone's life living outside of it. I, I you know, at the modern school of film in here, murmur, we've talked to hundreds of artists and thinkers and public-facing people about their work and mostly their life. You know, I consider what we do a triptych of a life through the work, through the, the, the work through the life in the sense. I mean, it's kind of like this is your life, but through these objects. But I know, I only know so little of the story because time and, and vantage or limit, limits that are placed on what we do but also as a human being, I mean, we don't, we can't fully know something. And, and frankly, a lot of the men and women we would consider artists don't want to talk about that. So I, I actually, when I talk about people and I think about people living an artful life, I don't get into their motivational space. I get into this idea of the, the, the accumulation of decisions that create an artful life because artful life is another danger of artful life is assuming that art is always happy and positive and uh, a good use of time. I once had a student in, in a class of mine say that a, f a film I showed her should not have been made. And I argued there's not a, f I've never seen a film that should not have been made. Every film has a right to be made. Every Every painting has a right to be made. 
there's no opposite. There's no there's no there's no Rubicon we can place something, an art a piece of art under, that would successfully defend a position of den- its denial. Meaning, every be- every film needs to have been made. It, it's it's uh, you know life is a is a path of attrition, and I don't mean that again pejoratively. I mean it's kind of a it's a it's a it's a trail that it's it's judged as much in its accumulation as it is in its reduction. Roger Corman fascinates me. He's ninety one years old now, and why is that he's accumulated so many public notches <laughs> experiences, uh, and so many men and women have been in, uh, influenced by him. And literally came out of his school, this this um, Roger Corman school of filmmaking that we kind of globally call it, uh, for all the people that he has uh, affected and given work to, supported their work, uh, dangled the specter of work that may not have been so uh, so uh, attractive to a young artist. But you know, when in the early in the fifties and sixties cinema was really then again, fighting a war against television and a cultural war. You know, we were, we needed to give people a reason to go to the cinema and Roger is still working in that motivational category. I, I want you to watch what I do. I want you to watch this. And it's not just about marketing. It's about bringing you to that thing. And I think film has needed that. Film has always need, needed that. So if a student of mine says a film should not have been made, I would refute that. Now, is a film better left not seen? <laughs> she may have been onto something there. Roger has been creating film works. And again, what I also like about Roger is he exemplifies the definition of filmmaker I've asked Roger before about his legacy. I'll ask him again today, and it's, I think it's going to be the same answer that he gave me once. But it ties into this term of what is a filmmaker. You know, Roger has given birth to films, not always as a director, primarily as a producer, sometimes as an executive producer, sometimes as a financier, a distributor. You know, he was helping to distribute Truffaut and Kurosawa and Fellini films in the U.S. when it simply wasn't cool to do so through New Horizons. So Roger is an impresario of the highest order, but also, you know, going back to this idea of living a life of art or an artful life, not a life of art, that's different. I'm t- talking about does a, how does a human being live an artful life? Like what is the artistry of life? How do we assess art artistry the the human artistry again it's tricky because if i say to you man you've lived in art the art the art you've applied to your life is really extraordinary i I wouldn't want to be restricted merely to the to to the positive accomplishments in your life so perpetually the word art is a is a compliment and and I mean it as a compliment as well, but I also know that uh, a compliment can also fall under a more rigorous, uh, fall within a more rigorous context, meaning you survived something challenging or you presented something challenging, you presented something I don't agree with, but that presentation is artful and has gotten me to think and though I disagree with you, the craft of your thought, the craft of your action, the craft of your presentation is artful. So let's be careful when we talk about uh, art being only a positive thing and in the negative space of art that that's a negative thing. You know, art is all in. It's rather black or white. Uh, it's, 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 it's pushing all the chips into the table. And Roger Corman has done that for 60 plus years in the business and 90 plus years as a human being has pushed his chips into the middle 
of moviegoing. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Show starts in three minutes. Visit our snack bar and treat yourself to some delicious Castleberry's pit-cooked barbecue sandwiches. Cook the Castleberry way slowly over open pits of glowing charcoal, then seasoned with a sauce that's zesty, yet delightfully mild to please the entire family. Also at the snack bar, you'll find popcorn and soft drinks and candy and french fries to go with your Castleberry's barbecue sandwiches. There's plenty of time before the movie starts, so visit our snack bar right now for Castleberry's pit-cooked barbecue sandwiches. Still plenty of time to come and be served at the refreshment center before showtime. Show starts in two minutes. First time in screen history, a special interval will be provided during the running of this picture for refunding your admission. If you're unable to stand the almost unbearable suspense, the almost paralyzing shock of homicidal. I'm William Castle, and. Uh... Uh, this wheelchair is just to rest my tired nerves after producing a picture like this one. We are so sure you will find it such a shocking and startling experience that we are offering a money-back guarantee when you come to see Homicidal. At the height of the suspense, there will be a fright break, an interval during which you can quiet your nerves. If you are too frightened to see the end of the picture, your full admission price will be refunded. Time to go downstairs now. Got a date to carve a corpse. This is the fright break. Do you hear that sound? It's the sound of a heartbeat. A frightened, terrified heart. Is it beating faster than your heart or slower? This heart is going to beat for another 25 seconds. To allow anyone to leave this theater who is too frightened to see the end of the picture. Ten seconds more and we go into the house. It's now or never. Five, four, you're a brave audience. Two, one. And now, on with the show. don't get the right to call themselves visionaries. Uh, that's something the rest of us do. Today's guest doesn't consider himself a visionary. Uh, I do. A thinker, a father, a grandfather, 
of of so many cinematic children it's hard to count in over six decades of filmmaking he has produced over 300 movies and directed more than 50 films uh, in 1957 alone he directed 10 films so that that was a slow year um, his innovations uh, run the gamut from the way we see films to when we see films to how many films we see to the speed at which things are shot and the budget and the the real mentorship that filmmaking is. Um, he is returning to some old cinematic ground uh, with uh, his legendary film, 1975, Death Race 2000. That's born again, and we'll talk to him about that. But I also wanted to talk to him about a new, a new wave of cinema um, youth that he's encouraging in Asia. Uh, he is the star of Silence of the Lambs and Godfather Part Two. Um, he is not only a student of the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking, he is the president of the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking. Please welcome to Murmur and the Modern School of Film, Mr. Roger Corman. Professor Corman, welcome to uh, Murmur. Well, I'm delighted, Robert, to be called Professor. Uh, <laughs> I'll take the honorary uh, uh, degree. Well, you know, we tell our students you don't need to be in a school to be a student. So I would counter that you don't need to be a professor to be a teacher. Uh, because, I, you know, you've mentored so many uh, of the icons of cinema and a new generation of icons, which I want to talk to you about. But um, so I have my this is the most important question I can ask you in our chat. So th originally the baby was worth 70 points. Now, why is it only worth 20 points in uh, Death Race 2050? This is what people really want to know. <laughs> why, why, why is the life of the baby decreased in, in, in 50 plus years, uh, or sorry, 40 plus years of this film? Uh, Death Race tw uh, 2050 is out. How does it feel to give birth again to this, uh, this idea of the Death Race? Well, I'm delighted to have given birth to the new death race. What I had tried in the original, which I did in the 1970s, was based upon the culture of the 70s and how it would change by the year 2000. So the new one is based upon the culture of today and how that might change by the year 2050. Right. And one of uh, the things we know is the fastest growing portion of our population is old people. Mm. Uh, the country is getting older, and the question of welfare, of course, is a big thing with Obama on one side, Trump on the other, and various people having different opinions. So I just came up with the idea of increasing the number of points for killing old people mm -hmm. in order to get rid of them and not have to pay for, uh, the government would not have to pay for uh, their health care, their upkeep, and so forth. It was a minor satirical comment. It's interesting that you caught that because <laughs> nobody else has. Well, it's interesting. Uh, we're just speaking with uh, the legend. I mean, I, I honestly don't have enough adjectives and nouns for Roger Corman. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, there's the great scene in the original, not to compare, the euthanasia scene when, when the elderly uh, patients are left out in front of the hospital. Um, and, and uh, you know, that film, the original, just to look at it through a different lens, it was such a cool metaphor, and it still is a cool metaphor. This, it's almost like a race to the bottom. You know, when I think of when I think of the election cycle, you know, and I know y yeah. you, you all were very ahead of the curve, and Malcolm McDowell has an incredible comb over in Death Race 2050. But it, it's that great metaphor. You really nailed it, and your films always have a central metaphor. But there's something about this idea of a race, and again, to be snide, it's it's sort of the American race to the bottom. I mean, is the film a pessimistic view? Is it an optimistic view? And which are you? Are you an optimist or, or the, the uh, former? Well, I would say I am both. In the short term, for the next few years, I'm a pessimist. <laughs> but in the long term, I am an optimist. I think we're going to go through a few bad years here, but that eventually uh, America will emerge and uh, move forward. Progress is not a straight line yes. up. It's uh, 
a varying line. I, the long term is up, but in the short term, there are dips and rises. And I, in my opinion, uh, we're going to have a short term dip. One thing your your career reflects is cinema. Is a, it's a medium of documentary and contrast. I always say every film is a documentary. I think all of your films are documentaries. I hate to break it to you. You know, I was thinking of the trip and the counterculture of the 60s and and uh, Hell's Angels. You know, th- these films were, were kind of reacting to a time and a moment. Uh, so Death Race, again, is reacting to a time and a moment. So it, it is interesting. Out of upheaval can come great works of cinema. Is that overstating it, or is that kind of part and parcel to your journey? No, it's not overstating it. I think one of the functions of cinema or of any art form is to reflect the culture and interpret the culture of the day, but also to portray it in such a way that it reflects the long-term culture, that there is a momentary quality to the work, but there is also a universal quality if you can put that together. Mm-hmm. I mean, your films, to me, are evergreen in that way, I, and in a, in a sort of scary way. Again, you know, horror films are in the, in the eye of the beholder. To me, The Intruder, 1962, is a horror film. Um, but again, that's a film that could play t- today in a really sophisticated way. How much of a risk did that feel like at the time when you made The Intruder? It was actually a bigger risk than I realized uh, when I... Uh, began working on it. Uh, I was very much interested in the concept, which was very powerful in the country, which was finally the integration of schools in the South and the opposition to it. And I had had a string I really saw, I had never had a failure. Mm. I had a string of I don't know how many films. Everyone was successful. And it was to the point where I could really just give an idea to any one of several independent companies and they would back me. I bought the novel by Chuck Beaumont and Chuck wrote the script and I showed it to these companies and everybody turned it down. Mm. I couldn't believe it. So uh, my brother, who produced it and I directed it, we put up our own money wow. and uh, made it with some difficulty. We did have death threats and things like that, but nothing ever really materialized. We were run out of a couple of towns by uh, the police there, but there was never no, no, nobody ever beat us up. But uh, it was difficult, but we were able to make the film. And we got wonderful reviews. I remember there was one New York paper. It's just made me think. It said, The Intruder is a major credit to the entire American film industry. Wow. It was my first failure. Wow. And uh, hmm. I think I learned something. There were two things from that. One, I was too serious in the film. I was essentially giving a lecture on civil rights, and I had forgotten that a film must be entertaining. The public just didn't want to see a picture like that at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. We had, uh, speaking with Roger Corman, we had Peter Bogdanovich a couple of weeks ago on the show talking about Targets, and Targets was a film you had your fingerprints on as well in a different way. But that, again, is a film that, if you showed that today, my goodness, I tell my students now to watch Targets. What about a film like that? Do you re- recall the, the reception and the time working on Targets, or at least introducing Peter to the property or the energy around Targets 1968? The basic idea in Targets, Peter and I discussed, but it was really Peter's work. Uh, what we were trying to talk about was the role of violence again in society. It's one of the gr- great debuts in cinema history as far as I'm concerned. Yes, I was, yes, exactly. It was his first film and one of his best. We sold it at a very nice profit to Paramount, but then Paramount became afraid of it. Because mm. uh, part of this, the boy uh, is on top of a drive-in and he's shooting at people in the drive-in. Yeah. And there'd been an incident 
I think, uh, several incidents where even then people had shot in the crowd, and they gave it a very limited uh, release. Uh, I think uh, one department liked it and bought it, and then the distribution department uh, became afraid of it. It's uh, somewhat of a lost film, but the reputation is such that uh, still DVDs and so forth continue to sell because enough people are aware of the film. I always wonder, and I would ask you, is it as a filmmaker, and maybe now more than ever, is it what's worse, being ignored or being <laughs> criticized? <laughs> you know, in the sense that, you know, you, you've been so prolific. But let me just give you a thought. Let's say a portion of your films didn't get the play they deserved or were, people were scared of or studios were scared of. What is worse, having loved and lost or never, never having loved at all as a filmmaker? I think... Uh, it's worth never having loved at all. Mm. So for a filmmaker to be ignored than to be criticized. Mm. It's interesting. Speaking with Roger Corman, I want to talk a little bit about another chapter that you're opening up in your life again, it seems. And to me, I consider this a form of mentorship. You've, you've been in China recently. <laughs> you, at, yes. the, at the end of last year, you went to China. Tell the listeners a little bit why you were in China. Um, I mean, why not is the answer. But you were there on a specific mission. Uh, of di- of cultural cinematic diplomacy. Tell us about that and, and what's coming next. And, and, and Well, it'll be my next picture, uh, somewhat out of the blue, but uh, a Chinese producer I know, Henry Luck, I had made a picture in China with him uh, many years earlier, and he may have set it up. I got a, a call from a company called ICE, uh, which is sort of the Chinese equivalent of Netflix. Right. And uh, they wanted to make uh, a Chinese science fiction picture, but they wanted to be shot in the English language. Uh, and they called me and they flew my wife uh, and me to Beijing, and Henry came up. So Henry and I are uh, going to make it together as to why a picture for Chinese consumption should be shot in English, I don't quite know. <laughs> well, you know, Dr. Zhivago, they're all speaking English, and it's in Russia, so don't feel so bad, Roger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we're going forward, and uh, we'll probably, we're doing a little bit of a rewrite of the script, and uh, we hope to shoot in April, or maybe a little bit later, depending on... Uh, uh, the time it takes for the script. So, th- this company, I Kiyi, is that am I pronouncing? Uh, I never. I remember before uh, <laughs> that the, they had this big convention. Was a, uh, there must must have been uh, five, six hundred people uh, in the uh, in the uh, convention center, and uh, I said, uh, I want to make certain I pronounce. Uh, the, the name of the company correctly, and I said IGE, and they said no, it's IGE, and I said okay, IGE, <laughs> yes. and finally uh, it dawned on me that there was some subtlety yes. that, as an American, I wasn't getting it because they kept telling me how to pronounce it. I kept thinking, I'm pronouncing it correctly. Why are they always uh, uh, criticizing me? And then I thought, it's the usual thing with languages. I just don't get some little something in the pronunciation of uh, of the name of the company. And I figure, who cares? I'm an American. They would assume I might make a mistake. <laughs> exactly. They, they would do the same, I would imagine. I, it's interesting. China is an interesting country in, in the cinematic map because there is a kind of push-pull relationship with the government and movies in general. There, there tends to be instances of censorship and drawing pictures back and reading scripts. Has any of that come into play yet? Because I know the, the company you mentioned, I'm going to stay away from the pronunciation and, and, and live to speak another day. I yeah. did have the picture I made with Henry a number of years ago. The, the uh, Living Dead, is that 2013, The Living no, Dead? No, it was, actually it had a couple of titles. Okay. It was, um, the first was Ghost of the Haunted Palace. Oh, wow. And uh, 
the picture was turned down by the censor on the basis that ghosts are a primitive superstition. China is a moderate, a modern company, country, and uh, they don't believe in ghosts, and we could not make a picture about ghosts. And I said to Henry, what are we uh, going to do? We're uh, already in pre-production. He said, uh, give me a week, I'll take care of it. And uh, <laughs> he's resubmitted. Actually, there's several people in the censor's office. So he resubmitted exactly the same picture and changed the title to something about the forbidden palace or something like that. Uh, and the uh, and they passed the picture and we made the picture. It's really interesting that you say that, speaking with Roger Corman here on Murmur. Um, the I know Wang Kar-wai, the, the legendary Chinese filmmaker, he'll, he'll often say, I'll write a script specifically for the Chinese government to read, but it won't be the shooting script. And I'm not suggesting you're doing that, but it's, it's interesting. There is a different tr- trigonometry in terms of getting a film made and seen there, but it's not just Westerners. I know Ang Lee has had films censored there, A Lost Caution, a film of his. There, there is a kind of... Um, it's it's an it's a filtration process, but there's another part of this with your films, which are interesting because China there's a market for films on the secondary market. Let's say, <laughs> let's let's put it mildly. There's a there's a kind of great. And also talk about pirated DVDs. That's kind of I was trying to say it much less eloquently. You were exactly saying that, and and I want I want to say something that is a compliment. I think your films, in a way, fit that milieu because I. There's something about piracy in film that kind of matches up. Is there any mixed emotion you have about it, or is it is it abjectly wrong or abjectly right? Or what do you think about that? Because China is a nation, and you're going to go back now and, and create this work with them. Does is that a tickle in your throat? This idea of piracy uh, in film. It's more than that. I am outraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, piracy is stealing. Yes. They have stolen my films and sold them and, and not paid me. And it isn't just me. Yeah. Uh, the piracy is almost every film that is out is pirated uh, in a number of countries. Uh, the biggest is China that does it. And uh, it's simply illegal, and it's taking away the fruits of my work and of everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Allow me to play contrarian for a moment. I want to match that up with this idea of a filmmaker's work being seen. Forget yourself for a second. Is there any philosophical path where it works for a filmmaker? And I look at it like bootlegging in the music industry. You know, there was a time where bootlegging was, you know, people sharpened their knives. And then groups started bootlegging their own music to be sold so it's kind of like if you can't beat them join them is there any i don't say value but again it goes back to that thing wouldn't it be worse to be ignored is it better to be ignored than pirated how's that question uh now i had never thought of it in those terms but you have a point uh people are seeing my pictures that who would never have seen those pictures before so i am reaching uh, a wider audience. On the other hand, I'm just not being paid yeah. uh, to reach that audience. This becomes an interesting, possibly philosophical discussion. <laughs> I believe yes. it's a better as a criminal discussion. <laughs> They're stealing my work. You know, next week we'll bring a whole list of wanted men and women, and we'll ask them, and I'll get back to you on that. Uh, the other yeah. last part of this, I would encourage folks listening to go to Roger's Facebook page because there's a wonderful photo of you and your lovely wife standing in front of a room of young uh, film brains in China, in Beijing. And it made me think when I saw this beautiful shot of all their iPhones in the air, I thought, here he goes again. He's mentoring people unintentionally. You've always had this interesting relationship to mentorship because you you have these unbelievable students of the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking, but then then they're off into the world. So the question becomes, how important has mentorship been to you, Roger? It has been an important part of what, of what I do. I think of myself basically as just a filmmaker, somebody who's making films. And part of making films is that um, 
you can be a director, you can be a writer, a producer, whatever. And also, you can find new talent and produce their films. So it's simply a part of what I've done uh, from almost from the beginning. It really started when uh, early in my career when I'd made some money and I couldn't think of a way to invest it. The basic ways to invest are generally the stock market and the real estate market. And I thought, I don't know anything. I, I don't know enough about this. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, the one thing I think I do know is the motion picture business. Why don't I invest uh, not only in my own films, but invest in other people's films, uh, because I think I have some knowledge there. And I thought an interesting way to do it was simply uh, being a young guy in Hollywood, I thought I knew a lot of people, and I knew some guys who I thought were very talented, and nobody had recognized them. And I thought, well, the thing to do, uh, it was actually Irv Kirshner, uh, went on to have a very good yes. career as a director. Absolutely. He directed a picture called Stakeout on Dope Street <laughs> that we right. sold uh, to Warner Brothers. And then uh, the next was uh, Francis Coppola, who did Dementia 13. Incredible, yeah. And then I thought, you know, it's uh, kind of interesting uh, to find new directors and so forth. So I did it, and... After a while, actually it was very fast, people knew I was doing it, so young writers, directors, producers, and whatever were contacting me as well as I was looking for them. Well, what, what do you, so in that case, as we look at uh, moving towards this project in China and Beijing, what do you hope to model for these young filmmakers? I mean, you, they're going to look at you as a mentor whether you like it or not. And that's, you know, that's the way teachers are. And that's the way filmmakers are. Even if a filmmaker is struggling on a set, the, still, the crew still looks to them for the answer, as you know. Uh, so what subconsciously, subtextually do you want to model in this process? Well, I'll go back to uh, that picture you talked about uh, my wife and I, uh, while I was there making the deal to uh, produce uh, this new Chinese picture, were asked to give a lecture, a joint lecture, uh, to the Beijing Film School, and that was taken there. And I think I have a feeling uh, that one of the reasons they want me, actually my title is executive producer, uh, I think one of the reasons they want me uh, is because they know I've started a number of people and I have a specific way to make films, and I have a feeling uh, they want to see what I do. Uh, people don't realize it here uh, because we... Some people think of China as the enemy. The Chinese have a great admiration for the United States Absolutely. and respect our culture. They differ from us in a number of ways, but they respect our culture, and particularly they respect what they consider to be our expertise in different areas. And I think one of the reasons... Uh, they contacted me to make this picture is uh, they're going to be having some people watch me work and uh, and maybe learn a little something that's different from the way they work. I, I was able to sit next to Mr. Corman a few years ago in Philadelphia and we had a nice chat and one thing I learned from you is um, there's something natural about every creative person that is is either a lie or the truth. And sitting next to you, you know, your smile, your your energy, your 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 mind, and your your thought process is is one I've never come across. And not to sound so salutatory in this question, what do you want your next beat, your next piece of legacy to be after this? I take it to a certain extent one day at a time, but I think uh, my legacy, which I think is uh, going to be rather small compared to other people, <laughs> but if there's any legacy, it's a, I was a filmmaker. I, I started as a writer, became a director, producer, then uh, mentored, as it were, a number of people. I simply worked in 
just about every aspect of filmmaking, and I enjoy it. Somebody, mm. this is not an original statement from me, somebody said, if you love your work, you're not working. Yes. And yes. I think that's the way I think of it. I don't think, uh, even though I've made a couple hundred films, that I've really worked. I've just been doing what I want to do. Uh, Mr. Corman once called himself the king of the second Raiders. And if that's, <laughs> Roger, if that's true, then the rest of us don't even uh, garner a number. I want to thank you, not only for today, but I want to thank you for your motivation, which to me is as pure as any filmmaker that I've ever met or watched. It's a love of film that even if I had never met you, I would have suspected. So I want to thank you so much for being with us here today on Murmur, Roger. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Robert. I've enjoyed the talk. It's a long and a dusty road. A hard and a heavy load And the folks that I meet ain't always kind Some are bad, some are good Some have done the best they could And some have tried to ease my troubled mind And I can't help but wonder Where I'm bound, where I'm bound can't help but wonder where I'm bound I've been wandering through this land Just doing the best I can Trying to find what I was meant to do And the people that I see Look as worried as can be And it looks like they are wandering too and I can't help but wonder where I'm bound, where I'm bound. Can't help but wonder where I'm bound. Well, I had a little girl one time. She had lips like sherry wine And she loved me till my head went plumb insane But I was too blind to see She was drifting away from me And my good gal went off on the morning train And I can't help but wonder Where I'm bound, where I'm bound can't help but wonder where I'm bound If you see me passing by And you sit and you wonder why And you wish that you were rambling too Nail your shoes to the kitchen floor Lace them up and bar the door Thank your stars for the roof that's over you And I can't help but wonder Where I'm bound, where I'm bound Can't help but wonder where I'm bound I can't help but wonder where I'm bound where I'm bound Can't help but wonder Where I'm bound I used to, um, when I watched movies and, and when I began to study filmmakers, uh, I would typically start with their first films. I think that's a great way. And also as a practitioner, I think, young uh, filmmakers benefit from watching films, first films. And there's a great, there are a couple of great volumes of books with interviews of filmmakers talking about their first film experience. Uh, my first film, is it called My First Film? That's kind of a creative title. That's, it's a, there's a great volume, a definitive volume as Coen Brothers, Ang Lee, Mike Lee, uh, Janet Lee, no. Um, it, it's got an incredible Mira Nair, incredible list of filmmakers talking about their first film experiences. And it's really fantastic. I remember when I m made my debut film, I read it and I believed I dropped it in the bathtub a thousand times. It's actually it puffed out. It's like 
Jiffy Pop now, uh, and the pages are falling out, but it's extraordinary. Now, as I've gotten older uh, and I've seen life and the world differently, and, and that's as we all do as we get on, um, I am fascinated by filmmakers' final films and some of their last films. Um, you know, Hitchcock, Frenzy, and Family Plot are fascinating films. And, and again, it's not they're not simply fascinating because they're great or even good or bad. They're, they're just, I think they represent, you know, works of art in the latter, in the latter stages of a career are, uh, you know, a symbol of <laughs> survivordom. Prairie Home Companion, Bob Altman. I, I don't think that's a great idea for a film, but it, it's a fascinating piece of work. One of the interesting artifacts of uh, Prairie Home Companion, Robert Altman, which was his final film, he couldn't get insured to make the film, so I believe the producers had to hire Paul Thomas Anderson, the filmmaker, to be on set with Bob in case something happened physically. And Altman wasn't able to complete a sequence or what have you, uh, so PTA was there. And I think that's how he met, I don't know if he met Maya Rudolph that way, who's also in the film, or they had known each other. But I know Paul knew a lot of the Saturday Night Live folks. And anyway, uh, other final, you know, other films near the end of careers uh, are really, it's sort of interesting. The the Johnny Cash song I just played out out of the out of the uh, Corman uh, this talk with Professor Corman is off it's it's the his off his American recordings which we he did with Rick Rubin that's off number six uh, which is Ain't No Grave is the name of the, the the full collection of that and that's a song called Can't Help But Wonder Where I'm Bound Tom Paxton did the original in 1964. That whole collection and its six records that Rick Rubin produced started uh, with the record called Amer Cash American Recordings 1994, and it went uh, number six, which is Ain't No Grave, is, is 2010. And the, the last two, American Recordings 5 and 6, were released posthumously. Uh, Cash died in 2003. Johnny Cash died September 2003. June Carter Cash died a few months earlier, a brief spring 2003. Uh, Johnny, it's funny, at that time when Johnny started recording those with Rick, uh, the first one came out in 1996, which is Unchained. Cash, and this is another thing I find fascinating about late, late stages of artists, revered artists, Kurosawa, someone talked about a lot, struggled to get a film made, to he took tried to take his life twice. Cash was having trouble in the early '90s. He had a string of less than stellar records, and uh, wasn't on a label. Actually, I think the late the the last la the, the label the ultimate label for him before he did the Cash recordings was Mercury, and then Rick Rubin under his American label produced what what was to be Cash's last collection of records and two released posthumously it, it's an incredible it is a treasure chest that series is is a treasure chest and I, I the way they articulated it the way the strategy of recording you know for the most part it's six records with johnny and his guitar in his living room uh in in various stages of health frankly and rick rubin talked about the fact there were sometimes johnny couldn't perform physically couldn't sing or hold a guitar and, and felt very self-conscious about his voice and and passed away in 2003. So the whole six records hadn't been released and also the passing of his wife. So there was a lot going on, obviously, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually for John at the time. June Carter Cash uh, said that Recording was Johnny's uh, main reason for being alive. Rick Rubin said it it was the only thing that kept him going. So it's interesting, you know, Roger Corman, oh, this is an awful line to draw, but it's interesting, you know, those things, those legacies, 
Johnny was a song man. He was a performer. And, and this performing kept him afloat late in his life. And it's a sort of a beautiful testament. And you can hear it in, in, in those records. And, and I think and it's something, you know, Rick Rubin talked about that the, the success of those recordings, especially the first ones really surprised Johnny. And uh, it was at a time where Johnny had lost his faith in himself as a recording artist. And not only is that series a beautiful, uh, representation of one man, but also the artist contributing to it, whether it's, you know, a cover John did of, of, you know, there's so many great artists being covered in those selections, but also Tom Petty jumped in. Tom Waits, I think wrote something original for John. Uh, there was no shortage of really smart, amazing, legendary artists on those recordings. So, it's it's really interesting to me now in my viewing of film as we make the leap back to film to watch films you know if 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 one and i would say anyone's listening to this if 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 there's a resistance to watch modern films watching modern films by filmmakers who have had an extended incredible legendary career is is a unique valuable experience and the reverse is true as well. And I always tell my students um, uh, one way to really get in the kind of the the entropy of watching a movie, a classic movie, is is to visualize that it is the the debut of that movie. I remember sitting in a room full of students about to show them Psycho, and I said, you know, rearrange your 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 stimulation for a second, Re- rearrange your neurons, and pretend. <laughs> that you were about to watch the new Alfred Hitchcock film. I did the same with Clockwork Orange and, and a room full of students um, t- telling students, pretend you're watching the new Stanley Kubrick film. And when you do that and when, when you're able to watch those movies in, the, in that kind of reverse state, it's really fascinating. And talking about Kubrick, uh, I was um, putting a list together of of directors and their favorite films of their catalog. Uh, And uh, I shared the list with a friend. Some I knew very well. I know Hitchcock, just to go back to Hitchcock, uh, Shadow of a Doubt was was his favorite film. So he always talked about that as a favorite of his. I had shared the list with a friend, a colleague, a really smart film critic, and I asked him about Kubrick, Specifically, I, I and he said Eyes Wide Shut was Kubrick's favorite film. Now, I had tracked that as well. I had seen somewhere where Stanley had said Eyes Wide Shut was his favorite film, but he had said that in 1999. He passed in 1999. And again, sometimes filmmakers will say, well, my favorite film is the one I'm doing now. But this film critic elaborated and said, no, I truly believe this Eyes Wide Shut was Kubrick's favorite film was most personal film. Uh, it was obviously his final film. Um, so the sum total of, of these different monologues of, of final works representing their artists, music and film, do not discount new films by legendary creators. And that sounds like an obvious thing, but you know, when you see the new Scorsese film or, or you know, when you see the next Michael Haneke film or, you know, Mike Lee film, there's something in their, in the time of their life that's working there. And the same with Roger Corman. You know, he continues to produce. He's now producing something uh, with um, uh, these incredible new mentees of his in China. I'm I'm going to be glued to it. I want to see what comes out of this. I want to see the subterfuge of this because Roger has a lot to give and I know these students will be listening as will I. Speaking of Roger Corman, I want to thank Roger for being with us here on Murmur. I want to thank you for listening to us. You can listen to us live every week, every Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Eastern Standard Time, 
WHUPLP. You can listen anytime on the website murmurradio.com. We are social at MSF Murmur. Email us, murmurradio at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Let us know what you're up to. Thanks for tuning in. Class dismissed.